Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs. We'll be talking to corporate leaders about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Thanks for joining another Unlocking Innovation series podcast. Today, we're here with Adam Stanley. So Adam has been the global chief information officer and chief digital officer, as well as the chief client technology evangelist at one of the top three global commercial real estate firms in Cushman and Wakefield. He also serves on the Cushman and Wakefield Diversity and Inclusion Council, is an executive sponsor for the LGBTQ plus employee resource group, and acts as the president of the Cushman and Wakefield Charitable Foundation. We are super glad to have you here today, Adam. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I think we're going to dive right in here. So Adam, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey and um, how you got from where you initially started to where you are now? Wow. So um, that is, let's see, try to make it a quick, quick answer. Um, my, my journey really started in consulting because I think when I graduated from undergrad, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I was, had a great academic career met a lot of people, was really good at interviewing and kind of um, solving problems, but I didn't really want to commit to anything. So Deloitte Consulting offered me the opportunity to have a consulting experience where I'd have diverse clients, diverse experiences, and then they offered to pay for my MBA, which was a huge plus. Nice. So I went to uh, Deloitte, spent uh, quite a few years there. They paid for me to go to Wharton for grad school. And continue to basically do strategy and, and operations work. So I was doing a lot of cost reduction, a lot of M&A, a lot of integration work, um, really on the strategy side. So none of my projects had tons of technology because back in those days, technology was ERP and right. you know big Y2K stuff. And I really wasn't interested in that. Um, I started doing some outsourcing work. And as a part of my outsourcing experience, I started to meet people in technology. And um, eventually, I was hired to outsource technology for a bank. And in the process of outsourcing technology for the bank, eventually, we were left with a small organization that had kind of the retained infrastructure team, the strategy team, and so forth. I was asked to lead a part of that team. My boss quits. <laughs> suddenly, I'm asked to take on the entire organization. Oh, wow. So suddenly, yeah. I have all these engineers and all these techies. I know nothing about what they're talking about. Right. I'm not a techie by training. And um, and I loved it. I didn't think I'd love it, but I did. So I love the, I love the leadership opportunity. I love meeting people. I love the experience of taking these real smart technology experts and... Um, and converting them into business technologists, and um, and I've never turned back. So that position led to my first um, uh, North America-wide role. Um, then I took on a global role in the U.S. Then I took on a global role in the U.K. And, um, wow. and then yeah. Cushman and Wakefield. So really it all started with kind of this almost accidental move into technology right and uh, and haven't turned back since it's interesting so so technology wasn't even part of the the picture initially it was no it wasn't i mean to be honest there are certain partners from deloitte that to this to this day tease me because um there was a period of time in 1997 i think 
when I was still in consulting, I was in strategy consulting, and I was put on a project that was a broader technology project, but they they convinced me to join the project because it was going to have a big strategic bend to it. They're like, well, you're going to be the revenue guy. Right. So I was on this project, thought it was going to be three months later, or three months, and about 13 months later, I'm still on this project, <laughs> and it's feeling more and more like technology. And right. I, I, I literally screamed bloody murder, Yeah. Um, went to the managing practice, um, the managing officer for Deloitte in Chicago, and I was like, look, I need to get into grad school. I can't be stuck on this technology project. Get me off of it, yeah. or I'm going to leave the firm. Um, and those partners to this day tease me. They're like, yeah, I remember you're fighting to get away <laughs> from technology, and now... Every time I open a magazine, you're talking about technology, technology. Right. And I'm like, well, you know, that was then and this is now. We've we've changed. We've evolved. Yeah. Um, and there's still a huge difference between ERP systems and innovation and emerging technology. So yep. I'm still not really interested in, you know, spending $50 million on a system and hiring, you know, 1,000 consultants to right. do it. Um, but I love technology. Yeah. And back then, that was kind of the way to go, right? I mean, that's what most companies were doing. So. That was the dream. I mean, for yeah. a partner back then, a Deloitte, a partner that could sell a project that had a thousand consultants for three years, you know, that was their career. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm interested because it, it was kind of how you described it. it. Sounds like trial by fire <laughs> with the with your your former boss kind of quitting. What did that experience specifically teach you about how to be agile and flexible to scenarios or be more innovative? Well, you know, to be honest, it didn't really it didn't teach me a lot about innovation and and um, and agile from a technology perspective. What it did teach me is is the reality that a mentor later on um, said to me. He said, fifty percent of your career choices will be accidental um, choices, things that just happen. Right. Fifty percent will be things you planned, and he said, there's not going to necessarily be a path of success or a pattern of success in either of those windows. So in other words, half of the things that you purposefully do will be successful, half of the things you accidentally do will be successful. Um, and, and you really learn from all of them. So I remember when my um, when the boss quit, his boss called me into his office, and uh, his boss was the global CIO for ABN AMRO, um, based in Holland. Um, he had flown into Chicago. He was meeting, I thought, with every one of the direct reports of the guy that was quitting. And um, he said, so do you know why I'm here? I said, yeah, just, just to make sure I'm good and I appreciate it. I'm fine. I'm not freaking out. I'm helpful. Whatever you need me to, to do to help out, I'll help. Um, he said, no, actually, I'm asking you if you're interested in the role. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, what? Um, Take and I was like, back you, here. Right? I was like, you know, I'm not an engineer. I don't know, you know, a lot of this software stuff. Um, and he said, yeah, but you're a leader and you're, you're one of the guys that I've always trusted and and I'd like you to consider taking on the role. And, and really, that's when I first learned. It's like sometimes you don't necessarily know what's next. And you may be running for, from something that's, you know, your dream job. So absolutely, listen, sit back, and, um, and take note. Because some of those things that come in front of you might not be things that you're planning. But they can fundamentally transform your career. Love and that. And it did. Totally did. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious as to, to how your, your uh, experience at Wharton um, kind of change your outlook on, on your career path and, and how you maybe view um, different scenarios in the workplace? Well, I mean, and this is with all due respect and absolutely no disrespect to any bankers, but 
Wharton definitely did solidify my um, thinking that I was not interested in investment banking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved my experience at Wharton. I loved the, um, I loved my classmates. You know, the finance majors, the marketing majors. Um, you know, the organizational behavior and all kinds of other majors. You know, it was an, it was a really interesting experience. Um, it solidified that I wasn't interested in. Um, investment banking proper, which is what I had always thought I wanted to do, um, but it also kind of re in, it kind of started the spark of technology interest because, mm-hmm. of course, I went to Wharton in the middle of the dot com craze. So sure. my class, probably fifteen twenty percent of my class, left and um, and started something. Wow! Yeah. So and, and Wharton's rule is if you leave as long as you finish within five years, you're you're fine. Um, and so a lot of our classmates left and, you know, started all those crazy dot-coms. You know, 98% of them failed. Right. Um, I am kind of proud and kind of embarrassed that on my official transcript, it shows that my concentration was strategic management and the management of electronic commerce, <laughs> um, which was... Spelled you know, out completely. <laughs> yes, which was a really big thing then. Um and so, yeah, so I was part of that dot-com craze. And so I think, if anything, that was the first time I started to realize that technology wasn't just about ERP and about foundational technology. But it was really the business, and it could really transform the way people worked and the way they lived yeah. and the way they inter- interacted. So so I think Ward, more than anything, kind of exposed me to different ways of thinking. And I met people that were from different areas and um the one thing that's fascinating to me is that one of the most popular majors and concentrations at Warden is real estate. And there was really passionate people there. They're interested in, in real estate. And we would always tease them. And we we're like, oh, all you talk about is real estate. And it's really funny that I'm in real estate today <laughs> because I can honestly say that not once during my two years did I consider real estate. Interesting. Um, but it's um, But now I almost want to replay some of my classes and go back and talk to some of those colleagues and peers and see, you know, what they're doing today and um, and where they're at and, and what's going on in, in their real estate world. Right, right. And that points back to that 50% number you were talking about that your mentor shares, that 50% of your career path is unplanned <clears throat> and, and not, not planned for at all. So, Yeah, the um, so the, the DTZ story, um, you know, the company that's now Cushman and Wakefield was DTZ. The way I got to the company was... I had moved back, so I had left Aviva and moved back to Chicago. Um, and I was trying to figure out, you know, kind of how much I wanted to do in, like, the community and where I wanted to go next. Um, I knew I would wanted to move back to Chicago, but because I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do next, I didn't tell anyone that I was back in Chicago. And so my, um, my friend who works at Russell Reynolds sent me an email. He said, hey... How's London? How are things going? And I was like, well, actually, I'm <laughs> back in Chicago. He said, let's have lunch. We had lunch. And um, he said, you know, I've been doing this search for this small real estate company called DTZ. I'm really struggling. We've been going back and forth. I've given them good candidates, and I thought they were right for the company, and they didn't quite work out. Um, do you mind just having lunch, you know, just, just talking to them? And um, went into the office to talk to the chief HR officer. Matt Bow and Matthew and I were supposed to have a 30 minute conversation. It ended up being like an hour, hour and a half. He walked me down the hall and he's like, Hey, do you have five minutes to talk to our CEO? 
he reaches into the door and he's like, hey, Todd, do you have five minutes to talk to Adam? Todd's like, yeah, sure, come in. By the time I left his office, the entire whiteboard, which was wall-to-wall, probably 22 feet, had been full. <laughs> um, it, it, it was, it was a, the greatest conversation. Yeah. I'd been there two hours, and I was leaving. I called my headhunter, and I was like, I really like those guys. I think I want to work with them. Um, and he said, hold on, I'm getting a call from Matthew Bow um, on the other line. And he comes back, he's like, well... Turns out the feeling is mutual. They wow. want to make you an offer. That's a great <laughs> and feeling. That's how fast. So I went from talk about serendipitous. I mean, I went from the headhunter not knowing I was back in Chicago right. to having lunch with him to having a meeting with the CEO and CHRO of DTZ to joining the company. And that was less than 45 days, wow. which was, you know, totally a random and, and, yeah. You know, and the company that I joined was one and a half billion dollars, and four years later, we're seven billion dollar company, and we're public. So yeah, and just recently huge, we're public. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a it's a huge journey, and um, and it was completely accidental. Wow, that's an amazing story. So let, let's let's dive in a little bit to the kind of Cushman Wakefield of today. So I know you've been extremely instrumental, in not just on the technology side, but just ushering in more of a culture of innovation. So can you talk a little bit about how Cushman Wakefield builds innovation through partnerships and some of the things that you've spoken about before? Sure. Um, I mean, I think our key differentiators, when I started, it, it actually started from the fact that I have left a, a massive insurance company in, in the UK, the you know one of the largest insurance companies in the world. I had a huge budget, two thousand employees. I was used to turning around and asking someone to do something, and like fifty people would be spun up within a week to do something. Um, then I come to DTZ, and I have like a hundred employees, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so the first thing I realized is that I didn't have the money. Um, the vendor power, anything that would actually allow me to do those kind of $20, $30 million big, big budget projects. Um, and then I said, but wait a second, maybe in this in this era where there's a startup every five seconds, I don't actually have to do that. So I went to a startup session, um, I think it was Disrupt CRE in New York, and I just met a lot of startups. I started networking with startups and listening to them. It also helped me get to know the real estate industry. And I realized that a lot of the innovation within this industry was coming from outside of the industry mm-hmm. because the industry itself was so kind of old school and really stuck in, in their old ways. Sure. And so, um, and frankly, that was um, how I fell into the partnership is that the really the, the way that we can be successful is if we as an organization get better than everyone else at actually working with these startups because startups are, you know, they're, they're hard to work with. Sometimes it's two or three guys um, working out of 1871, and um, and we're a 48,000-employee company in right. 70 countries right. with you know lawyers that want to legislate every contract and compliance people checking everything. And so it was really hard. And so I said, if we can figure out a way to more effectively work with startups – they will actually want us as partners. Mm-hmm. And so rather than them becoming our competitors and eventually disrupting us, like Netflix did Blockbuster, then perhaps we kind of help each other evolve. Right. Um, and I think it's how we differentiate ourselves. And we've done a lot more with dozens of partners than we ever could have done with 
you know, the little budget that I started with or even the large, you know, organization that I currently have after all of the acquisitions, I think we're just so much more powerful based on the partnerships. Right. Um, EX3 Labs is a perfect example because, um, to me, the, the word partnership has historically been used, in, you know, incorrectly because most people refer to vendors. They say, well, they're my partners. But no, they're really just your vendor because you give them a check, they give you a service. Right. Um, you know, our partnerships, we do things together. So EX3 Labs um, did a Black History Month event for me at, at Cushman and Wakefield, which allowed me to introduce to a very non-diverse firm very sensitive African-American topics in an innovative and creative way um, that I would have never been able to do with slideshows or presentations. But by allowing folks to put on those virtual reality headsets and walk over the bridge to Selma, walk into Ebenezer Baptist Church, you know, really kind of immerse themselves in that experience, that's a partnership because it's technology it's history. It's it's kind of corporate, all kind of coming together, yeah. um, and that's the type of thing you don't really do with vendors. Um, and I think that it's, it's helped um, helped us out tremendously. Fantastic. And, and to your credit, you saw that trend pretty early. I, you know, we, we talk to a lot of CEOs and CIOs, and th- there's still always some some hesitancy to work with startups because of all the things you mentioned. It's it's usually typically even less on the the legislative side or the governance side of the corporation and more on the well can they scale to meet our needs etc so there's some skepticism on whether or not the startups can deliver but to to your um, credit you've actually been on involved in this trend much early even before it came a tr- became a trend so <laughs> was that C- uh, CRE disrupt conference when, when was that when did that take place so um, I won't mention the name of the other one that I attended in the same period of time. So I attended two conferences within my first three months with what was in DTZ. So between March of 2014 and June of 2014, I attended one conference. Um, I can't even say where it was because people will know. <laughs> um, and then I attended the Disrupt CRE. The conference that I attended was a traditional real estate technology conference. I was sitting I remember sitting with the CEO at the time in the front row of the panel that was supposed to be on the most innovative things in real estate technology. And um, CEO was reading a magazine, literally <laughs> front of the room. Um, and I was sitting there like jotting down, literally plotting my next career move because I was thinking, holy crap. What have I done? Right, right. Um, because if this is the most innovative, <laughs> i got to get out of here as soon as I possibly can. Um, thankfully, like two or three weeks later, I went to that other um, seminar and I saw like, oh, this is where it's happening. Interesting. Um, and so I think that those two experiences together really drove me to to really start to embrace technologies. And, you know, and then and there are certain technologies that are just easier for people like me coming from outside of the industry to understand immediately. So virtual reality, augmented reality, it's so obvious. It's so intuitive when you're looking, oh, here's a big building. We have lots of different possible uses for the building. We can either hire architects to spend $300,000 and do mock-ups and build-outs, or we can just play around using virtual and augmented reality and figure things out. And um, and so it's just so much more intuitive. I think if I had been in the industry, I might have struggled because I would have known, oh, well, actually, how we do that is we 
do these CAD simulations and we do these whatever. I think my ignorance actually helped me mm-hmm. um, embrace certain innovations earlier sure. because I didn't really know the reason why certain things wouldn't work. Right. right. <laughs> so because I didn't have that bias, yeah. I was like, well, yeah, that can, we can try that and we can try something else. And think over time, um, the entire industry has changed. In the last four years, commercial real estate has just exploded with startups and innovations, you know, and VCs that are investing. Now we have Fifth Wall, Navitas, uh, Camber Creek, Metaprop. We have all these VCs that are putting money in. Pritzker Capital mm-hmm. is investing in real estate these days. So um, I think that in that four years, things have changed so fast. And I think I'm really thankful for those two very different starting conferences that I attended in my first three months that um, that really shook me into um, the, the technology space for real estate. Absolutely. One of the things I've always admired about you, especially within your role within the CIO, but also outside of that, is how much you, you keep your ear to the ground in terms of the latest trends and what's happening, especially with startups. Uh, you travel a lot. You you not only speak at a lot of conferences, but you attend just as uh, you know somebody who's an evangelist for technology and real estate. I also noticed because I, I follow your your personal website that you travel quite a bit and you have a, a personal goal of, of visiting uh, fifty countries by the time you turn turn fifty. I'm curious is you know how has your travel not not just for business but personally kind of inspired you and ha- mm-hmm. has anything specifically along those travels um, spoke to you specifically around innovation and in, in, in technology or, or something related to uh, to your job. You know, I mean, I, I think I think yes and no. My personal travel and my professional travel, historically, I've kept them very, very separate. So there are a lot of people that, um, you know, they're like, oh, I have a business trip to Las Vegas. I'm going to have the family or friends meet me in Vegas and stay for a few extra days. Or I've got to be in London for the week, so I'm going to have folks come hang out with me in London. I totally don't do that. I, I separate. And, and part of the reason I, I do that is because... Um, when I'm on, I'm on. When I'm off, I'm off. So smart move. <laughs> when, when I'm on the beach, you know, I want to be on the beach. Um, you know, I read really stupid books on the um, on the plane. It's one thing that's changed from when I first started traveling to now is the beauty of Kindle and electronic books. Um, I used to. Um, you just have to be really strategic which books you brought on the plane because if you're sitting in first class. You want to have you know. Hammer reengineering the corporation, or you want to have you know something really smart, just in case someone sitting next to you is like, "Oh, what you reading?" You know, and, and just looking over. Right. Um, the Kindle is the best thing ever. Yeah. Um, because sometimes I can read, you know, the Innovator's Dilemma, and I can read, you know, all these things about disruption, and then sometimes I can read Harry Potter, and um, yeah. which, by the way, I think has more leadership lessons in a series of seven books than. Most of the leadership gurus out there. Interesting. But, yeah. <laughs> so I, I would definitely highly recommend people read the Harry Potter series. Um, but yeah, so that's that's changed. But but really, from an innovation perspective, I think it doesn't. It's just the people you meet. So some of the first VC guys that I met or private equity guys I met were just random connections on an airplane, mm-hmm. and I started talking to them. And um, the first um, startup technology CEO that I met was the CEO of Yammer, which is now owned by Microsoft. Right. Um, 
he and I were sitting next to each other, and we just started a chat. It was a totally interesting, personal, just, hey, what's going on, chat? And then he talked about what he did, and um, and I was I happened to be heading to Australia at the time. I landed in Australia. The first thing I do is I ask the people in the office, have you heard of Yammer? Turns out that I had 400 users of this guy's software <laughs> in my Australian business, and I didn't know about it. Wow. And um it's kind of so how it happened. It, it, was, totally, it was really organic. Everybody wanted to chat to internally. Exactly. I remember kind of being a part of that wave. And then next thing you know, you get calls from different IT administrators within the company saying, we can't stop this. There's so many people that are using yep. it, and there's no governance around it. So Yep. And, and that's how, I mean, if you think about today, it's how VTS and Hightower really got propagated. They, um, you know, they were giving things out, and people were just starting to use their software. And there's five brokers, 10 brokers, 20 brokers, and then all of a sudden they were calling and asking if, we wanted to do an enterprise deal. So um, I think that's the most interesting part. But, I mean, to your question, travel to me is more about meeting people, experiencing different culture, and, frankly, just disconnecting. So um, I'm a huge foodie, um, so I love going to different countries and exploring their food and uh, what makes them tick and wine and whatever cocktails might be special in that particular area. Um, and um, and the, the last thing I would say is travel helps me connect with some of my team members. So, you know, I have folks in my team that live and work in the Czech Republic. I can, you know, I've traveled to Prague. I have French um, colleagues, and I can talk about the number of times I've been in Paris and and Lyon and Marseille, and 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 I think that builds a richer connection with some of the folks, Absolutely. especially since. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of Americans that haven't left the country. And for whatever reason, lack of interest, lack of funding, lack of opportunity, you know, whatever the reason. Um, And so the experience of a lot of our friends and colleagues around the world is very limited. So they've seen, you know, what they see on, on television. So to some extent, I also travel because I want them to see an African-American man from Chicago um, and what we are, what we can be, and what, what we really represent, and not just what they see on television. Absolutely. So transitioning a little bit, so, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are, that are you know, in, in a similar role to yours. What, what role do you believe you play specifically in leadership as a whole in creating an innovative culture within an organization? Um, I think that, uh, to be honest, that's that's probably fifty percent of my job. So people often ask, you know, what's CIO, what's CDO, what's this technology evangelist crap that you're always talking about? Um, to be honest, I, I think that the chief digital officer role basically serves to work himself or herself out of a job. So every business eventually realizes that they're a digital business. Some businesses take longer to get there. And so my role is, is helping us as an organization make that transition. So the business unit that is 95% manual, human-heavy intervention that should be 95% automation is not going to get there overnight. Right. And it's not going to get there just by me saying, so be it. Mm-hmm. It's going to get there by me having enough lunches, enough phone calls, enough conversations bringing enough business leaders with me to CRE tech um, kind of events 
and and showing them the future and showing them that there's an opportunity to be Netflix instead of being Blockbuster. And um, and I think that the more I can do that, the more we have leaders who no longer say things like IT is a corporate function or right. IT enables the business. It's like, no, IT doesn't enable the business. IT is the business. It's like um, the other major that I'm a little embarrassed by is um, my undergraduate degree. Had, I was finance, but my second major was international business because in 1995, that was a big deal. It was like mm-hmm. <laughs> no one was doing international right. business. So right. I studied a little bit of law and a little bit of political science and tried so hard to understand you know, what it would be like to do business across borders. Well, today, there's no such thing as a business that isn't international. Right. Um, tomorrow, there's not going to be any such thing as a business that isn't digital. So the concept of a chief digital officer, I think, will go away as each of these business leaders kind of start to learn that I can't run this business without also being a technologist. So by default, I'm the CEO and the CDO. Um, and I think that's when I move on to my next job, which hopefully will be one of those CEO roles um, because it's a business that's become a technology business. Absolutely. Well said. So what advice do you have for any listeners that, that might be trying to drive innovation within their respective organizations? Don't, um, don't be discouraged. Don't, don't give up. I mean, I think that the, um, there are some people that were sitting in the room talking to the executives of Kodak, screaming, you got to listen to me, you got to listen to me, you got to listen to me. And the executives ignored them. Right. Um, some of them gave up and just stayed within the company, and then they're out of jobs very quickly because the downturn happened, you know, like that. Um, some of them gave up and left and went to other companies and created amazing things, um, which is great. Um, but don't give up. So if, if your current company won't listen to you, keep trying, keep pushing, keep pushing. Find other outlets, and if eventually it feels like your company is not going to embrace innovation or they don't think that they have to worry about disruption, then seek out another company because um, better to do it on your terms than to uh, – wait for your company to be disrupted and then have to look for a job. But but create that culture and, and don't don't just use the words, don't just use the buzzwords. Um, if I were to say if if I only had one thing, one piece of advice, it would be learn the business. Know the business that you're in, know the value chain, know how you generate revenue, know how that revenue can be more profitable, know why your clients choose you over their competitors. Know what really matters to your CEO and the shareholders. Know your product portfolio roadmap and how you're actually evolving. Because all of those variables together should influence your innovation agenda. If you start with technology and you come into a room and you just talk about, you know, the sky is falling, disruption is coming, no one will listen to you. But if you say, in the last investor call, my CEO mentioned A, B, and C – here are ways the technology is changing, A, B, and C, and I'd like to lead the conversation about that, then they're like, oh, who are you? Right. <laughs> Come on in. Let's talk. Right. Um, and I think it makes a world of difference. So constantly tying that back into the business Constantly tied. Learn what your CEO is thinking and how he's communicating, and I think you're going to just be so much more successful. Fantastic. So last question. This is kind of a fun question, but 
Uh, what's the one app that you have on your phone that you can't live without? <laughs> wow. Mm. It totally depends on the, on the time. Personally, I just got a new puppy on June 2nd. And so she's an Instagram celebrity now. <laughs> so um, I'm on Instagram all the time. Nice. Um, so that's my the personal app that I can't live without. Um, I think the broader app that I can't live without is BBC News. Okay. Nice. Hopefully, I mean it's kind of boring, but those are the two. So good stuff. But my my dog, just for for reference, my dog has forty two hundred followers. That's crazy. On Instagram. <laughs> She has, she has around ten times more than I have. Wow! So in the last time I think I heard that it was you know probably oh, yeah. in a, a couple it's, hundred. Yeah, so, it's insane. Yeah, it's just you know, she's a popular gal. Do you want to give give the Instagram handle so the mm. listeners, if they're interested in following, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it's way too long. But, um, yeah, her, her I named her after either a Hawaiian god, um, a singer, or a. A, a Hebrew pilgrimage. So her name is Aaliyah. Okay. And um, so depending on your perspective, you can decide how I named her. But you can look her up, Aaliyah with two A's, um, and her middle name is, is Lene, L-A-N-E-E. Nice. So, very complicated, but fun. And she's and or you can just look for the cutest golden doodle online, <laughs> and you'll find it. So. Well, now, okay, so now I know there's going to be a ton of people that are going to want to follow you as well on the, on the, after this interview. So do you have a specific way people can, can follow you on social media? Um, yeah, so on Twitter, um, Facebook, and Instagram, my um, handle is ALS, which is my initials, uh, Wharton, which is my school. So ALS Wharton is, is the Twitter handle. So connect with me um, wherever you want to connect. Fantastic. Well, we want to thank you for your time today. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Um, and we want to thank Adam Stanley and, and Cushman and Wakefield. Um, uh, this has been a tremendous um, uh, partnership that we've had. And, and I think uh, every time we connect, we, uh, we learn something new. So thank you for that. And uh, um, we want to thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. tuning in to Unlocking Innovation. Remember to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud to stay up to date with new episodes as they air. See you next time.